Hello, and welcome to The Staffing Show, the only podcast that delivers tools, tips, and tactics from the staffing and recruiting industry's top executives and thought leaders. This episode is brought to you by Staffing Referrals, the only automated referral management platform chosen by smart staffing firms. Tired of wasting money on traditional job boards? Sick of reminding recruiters about promoting your referral program? Wish you could eliminate admin work spent tracking referrals and scheduling interviews? That's where Staffing Referrals comes in. Imagine transforming your entire talent pool into digital recruiters on behalf of your company. Think about how happy you'll make your team by eliminating wasted time spent tracking referrals and scheduling interviews. There's a reason that Staffing Referrals is one of the fastest growing software platforms in our industry. It's because staffing executives want to scale faster by automating recruiting processes. It's because with staffing referrals, you can actually see an ROI. And it's because our world is now more digital than ever, and your candidates expect you to keep up. Don't get passed by the competition. Stop missing referrals and start recruiting smarter. Get staffing referrals and improve your tech stack today. To claim one free month, visit www.staffingreferrals.com slash show. That's staffingreferrals.com slash show. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us for another episode of The Staffing Show. Today, I am super excited to be joined by Ira Wolf, who is the president of Success Performance Solutions. Ira is a millennial trapped in a baby boomer body and one of the top 100 HR influencers for 2021. He is the president of Poise for the Future Company, founder of Success Performance Solutions, a TEDx speaker, top five global thought leader on the future of work and HR Thinkers 360, and host of Geeks, Geezers, Googleization podcast, selected as one of the top 70 business podcasts to listen to in 2022. Ira is a frequent presenter at SHRM and a business conferences and a guest on over 50 podcasts each year. Thank you so much for joining us, Ira. Super excited to have you here. Why don't you tell us just a little bit about how you got into HR and staffing and recruiting? Hey, thanks, David. Thanks for allowing me to be here. Yeah, it's purely by accident. (laughs) I didn't even know if I knew what HR was for the first few decades of my life. My first career, which is always surprising when people hear this, is I was a dentist. So I practiced for 18 years. If you listen to my TED Talk, which was Make Change Work For You, which I did 2016, I talked about that a bit. And I said, I loved everything about dentistry, but dentistry. And I'm (laughs) sticking to that story. I've got an entrepreneurial spirit. I loved starting the business. I loved growing the business. I loved working with the people. I'd like not only influencing the patients, but also creating a team. I recognized for many, many years, although I was so, I started, I eventually had a partner. But I would always describe the business as we. And people would you say, well, oh, how many partners do you have? Or, and I go, no, it's just me, but I couldn't do it without my team. So indirectly, I guess that was what HR is about, you know, especially if you put the H back in HR and talk about humans in there. That was my goal. That's what I did. When I sold the business, I was in my 40s. As I said, I loved everything about it. Started a new business. I was going to consult just with healthcare and quickly realized I enjoyed the leadership side. I don't coach and consult a lot on team building, but I really like the assessment side. So I built that around there. And obviously, when you talk about pre-screening people, pre-employment, leadership, testing, helping people get in the right path, it just led into HR, sort of fell into it, which seems to be the case for a lot of people in HR. I do think I have yet to have anybody say, you know, when I was a little kid, I wanted to be a recruiter. <laughs> I don't think that's, that's not where I wanted to be in HR. It hasn't been the answer yet on that, but it's always interesting to hear the path. So going from dentistry to kind of HR consulting and your role with the Success Performance Solutions, what was that transition like? What steps did you take to kind of make that leap? It was sort of abrupt. I mean, it's a topic we talk about a lot now is I just got to the point where I was burnt out, but I owned my own business. So it was a matter of, I couldn't just change jobs or apply somewhere else. That wasn't in my nature. But I decided to make the move. I was actually almost 45 years old. My daughter had just graduated college. There was just some milestones in there. And it's like, okay, some of my responsibility have changed, lightened up. And I'm going to do what I always talked about doing was establishing a consulting company. What's interesting is is everybody else, not everybody, but many, many people, and especially 26 years ago, it was like, what are you going to do? I mean, you had to drill and fill, as they used to say about dentists, drill, fill, and bill. (laughs) That's what I knew how to do. And 
in reality is I said I had a small business or I had a marketing business that just happened to be in dentistry. What I did was, uh, again, I built a team. I built a business. We had a lot of processes and systems in place there, but I love the diagnostics. I mean, I love the critical thinking. I love solving difficult problems. I love the people relationships. I love like marketing. I like the customer care. Those are all transferable skills. And, you know, 25 years ago, nobody was talking about transferable skills. It's like, what's your degree? What's your job? What's your title? What are you going <laughs> to yeah. What are you going to grow up to be? And so I grew up, you know, I was going to be get a biology degree and then I was going to go to dental school and I was going to be a dentist. And most people, including up to this day, you know, this is what we talk about with adaptability and change. Up to this day, people still, their identity is still tied to a job title or yeah. educational degree. And to me, it didn't matter. They were just things that I learned along the way. And if I continue using them, I'd continue using them. And if I couldn't, it was just an experience and I pushed them aside. But I learned how to manage people. I learned how to lead. I learned how to deliver customer care. I learned how to hire. And certainly, I've learned a lot more since that time being focused on it. But those are all transferable skills. And you know, having good problem-solving skills and being able to relate with other people. I had a friend that told me, he said, no matter what you do, you'll be successful because it's not what you know, it's how you do it. I love that. And with that, so tell me a little bit about Success Performance Solutions and what you guys do as a business. Yeah, and that's always evolving as well. And when I started it, the first year, my title was Busy Practice. It was B-U-S-I Practice. And the logical transition was to work with healthcare professionals or mostly any professionals because it's not only dentists, but physicians, attorneys, engineers, architects, accountants. They're not very good business people. I mean, they had a degree and they went into that profession. So busy practice was BUSI. It was business in practice, putting business in practice. Quickly realized that I didn't want to work with dentists anymore. (laughs) And again, things have changed over 25 years. It's crazy that it's been that long. But at the time, I mean, even dentist advertising was a stretch. I mean, it had just been approved. And in fact, in in the 80s, uh, just a few years prior to that, it was even illegal to advertise. I mean, really? I didn't you can know that. put like your name. Yeah, you can put your name. You couldn't have it. Want a flashy ad? You couldn't have the back cover of when they had them. You know, yellow pages. Websites didn't exist, so it was very, very limited what you can do. You hung out a shingle, and then you promoted yourself. So I was good at marketing and getting involved in the community. That was an important part of it. So when I started Success Performance Solutions, that was the original. The original part I was going to consult and talk to professionals and small business owners how to grow their business. The part that they didn't like doing. It quickly evolved, you know, as we started the show, is how did I get into HR? Because I really, really liked the assessment side. I liked the diagnostic. I liked helping people solve problems. And I had always used assessments. So I used like DISC, you know, it was probably yep. the first assessment I did, but people might be familiar with DISC or Myers-Briggs. I was introduced to a couple other tools and really created my business around it. So after the first year or two, Success Performance Solutions really evolved into a pre-employment and leadership assessment company. That allowed me the opportunity to work across many different industries, many different people, align myself with coaches and consultants who their expertise was not testing or assessment, or they had one, you know, as a one trick pony. Oh, we just got certified in DISC. Okay. So every problem in the world, if you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Uh, (laughs) And from the very beginning, even with DISC, I realized that it's not the end all and be all. It's a really, really good tool. I still love it. In fact, just yesterday, I did a huge training with companies, which I don't often do, but it happened to be a good opportunity and I did it. But ultimately, it was Success Performance Solutions. If you go up to our website, you're going to see seven, eight, nine different types of assessments that we use. Everything from skill testing. Can they type and do data entry? Can they work? Do they have leadership competencies? Do they have the right personality, job fit, motivators? And then currently what we're really, really focused on because of the time and the need is something called the adaptability quotient. And many listeners might be familiar with emotional intelligence or emotional quotient. We've taken another step further and we're talking about adaptability quotient. It's not just about relationships, but are you change ready? How are people going to be okay living in what I call the world of never normal? That's really great. And actually, I've read a lot about how adaptability is the most important skill for business owners in the last few years and has repeatedly shown to be one of the key components for continued success. Just out of curiosity, I've also looked at, I've just recently started going down the positivity quotient. Are you familiar with that as well? I'm not, but the adaptability quotient is a lot about that because one of the 
the things that we measure is hope. Yep. Oh, it's actually, it's now hopeful because it's not that it's good or bad because there are people that aren't always positive and upbeat. And, you know, oftentimes it's like, well, we're just pragmatists. We're realists. And that's okay. I mean, sometimes we need to be. We just can't hope everything's going to just change. We can't hope we're going back to normal. We're not going back to normal. That's a, we can have a deep conversation about that. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. About, it's like standing in the ocean. And I remember this. <laughs> I actually stood in the ocean. I remember standing in the ocean in Atlantic City, New Jersey, watching some ship in the distance go by. And all of a sudden, I turned around and ran back to my parents who weren't there, not because they left but because I drifted underneath because I was standing still. And, you know, little did I know 60 years later, I was going to be talking about that. But, you know, reality is, is that's what we're living in this world of if we stand still or we're not moving in the same direction as the ground underneath us, things are going to move by. So the positivity quotient certainly aligns with this, you know, ultimately adaptability is not just the skill of, okay, how can we change better? If you're more comfortable changing, then, well, hopefully you're more hopeful because you see a better outlook. It's not this fear of everything rushing toward you. You see the light at the end of the tunnel or whatever metaphor we want to use. But ultimately, it's about well-being and it's about our emotional health. And again, if you have all that, then you're going to be more positive. So however you get there is, no, we certainly have a preference through the adaptability quotient. There's a lot of ways to get there. I love this, the concept of the adaptability quotient. That's really cool. And so when you're working with companies are you working with? Is it really any enterprise, staffing firms, et cetera? You're going in and are you helping with their internal hiring or are you doing it with more of their process for recruiting and sourcing from a staffing perspective? No, I, in fact, for staffing firms, you know, that are listening to this organizations or anybody, private company that's looking how to do it better. You know, I'd love to work with more staffing organizations. Currently I do, but it's primarily on the testing side that we provide the skill testing, typing, data entry, Microsoft Word type things. Yep. We have some that are using some of our personality assessments, job fit assessments. I work with recruiters on that. Although my book says uh, recruiting in the age of Googleization. I'm not a recruiter and I'm not a staffer. I mean, it was about recruitment marketing. It was about that approach. So I'm happy to work with organizations in that way. But mostly what we're working with is not on what your expertise is of sourcing and helping companies find employees and fitting employees and managing that process. Mine is how do you keep up with the change? How are companies changing? That's what they're struggling with. Or beyond that, if you hire someone you know, even if they have the technical skills, do they have the ability to adjust the flex? They're going to be introduced into a new culture. They're going to be working with new manager. They're going to have to change the routines. Everything we do, especially with this great resignation that we're experiencing, changing a job is stressful and it's new and we're going to have to change our routines and people aren't very good at changing our routines. So the adaptability quotient is a way that maybe working with staffing firms, they can help make sure the person's the right person that they understand who they are. But staffing is undergoing a huge transformation, a huge disruption. We just work with, not in staffing, but we work with the medical group and we work with the bank. And part of it was, are there people change ready? They had ambitious goals. The CEOs, the senior leadership, not only the CEOs, but the senior leadership had very aggressive, ambitious goals in both the bank and the medical group. Were the people aligned? Could the people keep up? Was leadership creating an environment that supported the change? Because people need help. I mean, they need to feel safe if they're going to try something new and they don't get it right the first time. They got to know that they're not going to get fired or terminated or penalized you know, for that. So do you have the right culture in place that allows that adaptability? And then it doesn't fall 100% on the management, but people have to have that ability also to adapt. So yeah, I'd love the opportunity to work with staffing, but also, you know, whether they're companies that are thinking about growing, they have a positive mindset, they got a great plan, but maybe not all the people are on board. Yeah. Well, what's interesting is one of my favorite authors, Yuval Harari, wrote the 21 Lessons for the 21st Century. And I think when they asked him, what is the most important skill in this century? I think it was adaptability. He's like, whatever career you are in, you are going to need to learn how to change with the pace of change with technology, the digital transformation, like you are going to need this. So I think you're seconding what I've heard from one of my favorite authors for sure. That's great. Yeah. Well, not only that, and this certainly wasn't planned. I mean, you just mentioned him. The final, and I use this in all my presentations, the final quote is from him. I'm going to bastardize this to a great degree. I quote it a little bit differently. And I say that the lines between science fiction and reality are blurring. 
And he says something to the effect that if you think that the science fiction we're seeing is just the mirage, you're wrong. <laughs> yeah. No, that's great. That's great. I apologize so, for really messing that up, but <laughs> get the message. I think it's on track and fits aligns with what we're talking about quite well. So the other thing that, and I mean, this goes back to adaptability. One of the things I know you're an expert in is kind of what's going on with the great resignation and understanding why people, I think it's up to suppose like 70% of people were planning to quit their job at some point in the next year. I mean, the stats on are astounding. Every company I talked to is dealing with it in some way, shape or another. What are your thoughts around that? And what do you think the drivers are for that? There's a lot there to unpack. So one thing just about the adaptability and every time you mentioned it, I forget to interject it. McKinsey did a really fantastic study. They do a lot of good studies, but they did one over the past year. I think it came out in the summer. And they talked about something they call deltas, which is dimensions of essential talent. What are we going to need in the future? And of course, the things that we teach and train and educate people on and what a lot of companies measure on basically have the lowest correlation with future success. <laughs> like digital literacy happens to be one of them, which and you say, well, that's really odd. The change is so fast. So, okay, right? It changes fast and you need people to be digitally literate, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to be successful in the job. Adaptability by far was the number one skill that had a correlation with future employability. The second was dealing with uncertainty, which is what we're talking about. So, you know, again, we need to have these shifts, but it's not just one isolated person who had some skin in the game that said that adaptability is going to be really important. Every, whether it's Deloitte, McKinsey, BCG, Boston Consulting Group, the World Economic Forum ranked adaptability as the number one skill that universally we're going to need. So, you know, you can go down a long list and everybody keeps coming up with the same solution or the same recommendation of where we need to focus, uh, get more people comfortable with that. With that, I forgot what your question was. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I was just saying, I've been digging into the, why are so many people? Oh yeah, why, why are we what changing? You, the under, yeah, the underlying, what are your thoughts yeah. on the, the Well, I, you know, I wrote a book and it's not that I was right or that I wanted to be right, but 22 years ago, I was presenting, I started to think about, we were in a similar situation where we didn't have resignations as much, or at least they didn't recognize it as that. But there were massive labor shortages. We couldn't find people. It was a dot-com boom right before the bust. And everybody was blaming at that point Gen X. You know, it was like, oh, it's the Gen X. They're just lazy. And then it became the millennials just a few years later. And now it's Gen Z. That's the problem. But there were a whole bunch of events that were happening, you know, all the way from participation rates to women entering the workplace to education to caregiving and childcare. I mean, things that we, in 2020, sort of hit the fan. As the subtitle of my book says, when the shift hits your plan. And it was a shift that hit everybody's plan. So the perfect labor storm sort of said, hey, we're going to have a significant shortage in 20 years. McKinsey said, we're going to have a significant labor shortage in 20 years. And the pandemic didn't cause it, but it pulled the curtain back. It was a series of events as they were experiencing now that if you ask somebody, what is it? What's causing young people not to want to work or older people? Why isn't anybody, what happened to all the workers? Which is another way to phrase that. Where is everybody gone? And it was just whittling away at multiple things. So just a few things your listeners may not be aware of. The participation rate for men, meaning the number of working age men who actually held the job, has been declining for 70 years. In 1950, four out of five men worked. In fact, it was 82% of working age men, prime age working age men held the job. Today, it's 62%. So one out of five men are working and they go, well, what happened to them? Well, it's a gradual thing. And part of it happened to be education because more women started to go to college, less men went to college. So it used to be that about 10% of college graduates, not in my lifetime, but right before that, but like in the 1950s, that nine out of 10 college students happened to be men. In fact, you couldn't even go to Ivy League school. You couldn't go to a military academy. You couldn't go to some of the best schools because they were male. They were men. And that's where you got your education. Over those 70 years, now women make up 60% of all the college graduates. So over time, is the less blue-collar, manually labor jobs that you needed more than a high school education and a trade to get a good job, you know, there was a major shift and women came into the workplace and men exited. The other parts are little things. It's just whittling away in little amounts. So there's a million males incarcerated 
they can't work <laughs> or they can, but they're not, uh, yeah. or at least they're not working in the jobs that you want them to work in. Another one is 2 million. And this just came out through a couple studies out of the 3 million frontline jobs that are open, 2 million of them used to be filled with immigrants. Wow. And we have zero immigration. So now you took 2 million people out of the workforce that used to work. And we won't get into a whole debate whether good or bad. But those jobs were filled and now they're not. And they were never filled. It's not that people, you know, U.S. citizens who could work, we took those jobs away. As many people said, we can't fill them if we didn't have the immigrants. And so that's another two million. There's like 880,000 men who are addicted to opioids. They're out of the workforce. Uh, now, some of those are in jail. So there's some of those. Yeah. Are, and so some of those overlap. But you keep saying, OK, a million here, a million there. And then last year, we lost a million and a half baby boomers. In fact, we lost two million baby boomers. We lost a million and a half to just retired, just said, I've had enough. I'm out of here. And another 500,000 in one form or another either were disabled or died with COVID. Yeah. So we took out two million baby boomers in the last year. So just in, what, two or three minutes, I railed off where five million workers went. That's wild. Um, that's why we don't have any workers. The reality is all those were on the fringes and they were just little pieces that happened over the last number of years. But we have a high rate of jobs. We have a lot of job openings. We have the mismatch in education. That's the perfect labor storm. It's all these effects that are converging on there. So it absolutely was no surprise. What was the surprise is that the pandemic happened. Obviously, you know, and then if you listen to Bill Gates, I guess it shouldn't have been a surprise. But we, <laughs> yeah. Knew something, yeah. we knew something was going to happen to that effect. Something, uh, but something. 20, yeah, but 2020 rolled around and it just ripped the Band-Aid off. I mean, we've been talking about shortages with chips and logistics and problems with transportation and supply chain issues. And, you know, all of a sudden when you have this crisis and you lose 5 million people or close to 10 million people out of the workforce for one reason or another, there's just no way to get everything done that we wanted to get done for to sustain the life that we had. And then the economy grew. I mean, despite the, there's a lot of people that are in sad shape and we need to fix that, but the market was good. The economy is growing. You know, reports just came out recently, you know, over 6.6% growth. It's probably going to slow, but The Economist, I have a podcast as well, and we interview a lot of people. At the end of the year, we always interview a couple economists, and every one of them said, it's going to slow, but we're going to still grow. Well, if you're still growing, it means that you may have fewer job openings, but they don't go away. Companies are so far behind the eight ball with job openings, and you know, then we go back to the toxic cultures. The pandemic and being at home, changing our lifestyles, people you know, would talk about the great evaluation, the great reflection, the great reshuffle. I mean, it has a name for it that people just said, you know, I'm not going to commute five days a week anymore. I'm not going to work for a crappy boss anymore. I found some <laughs> other options. I think going to one of you, somewhat around your question, is the great resignation, partly it's a change in attitudes from people. Part of it's a shift, a generational shift. That generational shift finally happened. The boomers finally are getting out of the way for one reason or another. And Gen Z and the millennials now make up, which is 40-ish and under, you know, now make up well more than half the working population. In fact, it's about 60% now. So we had all these shifts going on. But the one thing that certainly has changed for everybody is this desire for flexibility is a broad word, but to have a life. <laughs> so yeah. They have a life and people just got fed up and they're not going to take toxic bosses, toxic cultures and low wages unless you have to. Apparently not everybody has to do that. So yeah, you don't have to right now. <laughs> yeah. And I don't think that's going away. I think companies are going to be forced to do that. There's certainly always going to be companies that are at the bottom 10%. There's going to be people that are willing to accept those jobs because they don't want to change and they don't want to flex and they don't want to learn anything new and whatever. But as a whole, if companies, certainly the people that are probably listening to this podcast <laughs> and listening to you, the good people that are at least want to improve, they're good people. They want to take care of their families. They want to learn. They may not be with you for the rest of your life, but they're good people and they want to work hard. But when they're with you and, and learn new things, you're not going to have any chance of finding those if you just keep doing things the old way. Those days are, they should have been gone a long time ago, but they're going to definitely change now. You've got me thinking about some stats that I pulled 
for this conversation a little bit differently is I was looking at Fast Company. So in the last few days, they had an article about the top reasons why people are leaving their job. Number one was no appreciation. Number two, bad supervisor. Number three was no freedom of expression. What's interesting is I actually now thinking about that in terms of adaptability, I also could see how that could be an underlying cause for... Mm-hmm. It's like, all right, well, you're not appreciate. I just made all of these changes and you're not appreciating me more than you did before, even though I just changed all these things. <laughs> and and yeah. I think so many things are changing in the workforce right now. But, so with all of those stats, all of that information you just shared, do you think there's an end to the labor shortage? Do you think there's a route? Do you think this is just... Is this the foreseeable future <laughs> from where you sit? Well, there was two questions in there. One yeah. is, is there an end to the labor shortage? And is a simple answer, no. Not in my lifetime anyway, but certainly not anything you know, that's coming up pretty quickly. Companies just need to be better at it. I mean, there's certainly going to be automation that's going to supplant some of this. But just as, you know, if you look at probably one of the most automated companies in the world, which is Amazon, I mean, they literally bought the robot company. Yeah. I mean, the years ago, they bought Kiva. You know, here was like the up and coming robot companies. Amazon says, oh, we're going to buy you and we're going to do this. So you look at an Amazon warehouse and it's like, well, everything's done by robots, except they're hiring hundreds of thousands of people. (laughs) Uh, Now they're paying them 20 to $30 an hour to start. So how does that come back? Well, you still need people. It's still not 100% automated, but you need people to build the robots. You need people to maintain the robots and you need people to repair the robots. But those aren't the jobs that we used to have. You can't take the hot the server from the little cafe that just closed down, the barista, and put them in robotics. It's just not going to work. Now, some you could. Some are working both jobs part-time. You can't put them in ICU. You can't put them in an emergency room where we need jobs. So we have all these skills. We have a shifting economy. It's growing. It's getting much more complex. I talk about the three laws. I call them the three immutable laws of our future. You know, one is that we're living in a world that's going to move faster than we ever expected. And it's going to become really, really difficult to catch up. The second one is that we've shifted from a complicated world to a complex world and nothing will ever feel as simple as it used to be. Now, my grandparents used to say that. My parents used to say that. And now, you know, I'm of that age as a grandparent. (laughs) I can be saying that, but it's true. I mean, nothing will ever be as simple as it used to be and complicated. And this is huge when it comes to HR or staffing or businesses. Businesses would talk about being, they follow best practices. Everybody wants to know what are the best practices? We're going to have the best practices. Well, best practices work only in a simple world. If I do A, B happens. So for the last, most of my adult life for the last 30 years, while we talk about best practices, they were just good practices. Because they needed to change. They were good because they helped us follow. But complicated is if something doesn't work, they talk about like building a rocket ship seems complex, but it's not. Is it's just a series of parts. And if something doesn't work, you take out that part and you replace it if you know what the process is. So there are good practices. Living in a complex world requires that we have emerging practices. And that's scary because people want to know, well, you know, we're not pioneers, you know, we're just a small business, we're just in staffing, we're in a rural area, you know, we're not the leaders. Whatever anybody promotes and has out there is a practice that worked for them that day, that month, that last yeah. quarter, but it's always got to be tweaked. So we're going to live in a world of emerging practices, good practices, but the important word, the key word of that is emerging, and which leads to the third rule. So first is Life is going to change faster than we ever expected, and we're living on that exponential curve. Second is life will never be as simple as it was yesterday, or it'll be more complex than it ever was. And the third is we're addicted to certainty. There's so much written. There's a Harvard Business Review article that was that came out maybe in August or September, and it says our brains weren't hired for this much uncertainty. And it went back, and you know, over time, we had this thing about normal. We like stability. What do they call it? We are uncertainty adverse. So I think was the term they used. We like the routine. We like the routine. We like knowing that, hey, even though we hated our job, we know that we got up, we took this path, we stopped at the Starbucks or Dunkin' Donuts for coffee on the way. We got there, there were familiar people. We knew where our desk was. We liked that routine. And all of a sudden that was completely upended. And our brains just over history, it had nothing to do with work. It just had to do with everything that we were focused on this normal period and normal for a lot of people. Maybe it was decades, maybe it was just years. And that's shrinking. We are almost moving, and I know we've got listeners here, so I'm trying to create a visual form. In the past, you had a past and you had the present, and the present 
could be days, weeks, months, or years. It just, we fell into that routine. And then we had a future, which we dreamed about. And then on our grandparents' time and prior times before that, they were really distinct times. I mean, people could have a routine for 30 years. Yeah, for 40, same you know, job. For 30, 40 years. Go to the same jobs, live yeah, in the same yeah. house. My father-in-law, unfortunately, passed away this year. He lived in the same house since 1950. <laughs> yeah. You know, so I talked to people and they beat me out. My parents lived in the same house for a hundred years where the kids moved into that house. So the house was still in place. Those memories were still in place. The challenge we have is now that present day, which is what we would say is our normal. That present day almost doesn't exist. We almost live in a world where we move from the past to an emerging future. It's like today is like the first day of what our future is going to be. And tomorrow is going to be the first day of what our future is going to be. It's a moving timeline. And we're used to having past, present, and future. When the present shrinks of a consistency or a norm, somewhat of a serene period, you just move from the past to the future. And that's terrifying for people. I have that in my description and LinkedIn. You know, I'm fascinated and terrified by change. And fortunately, I'm fascinated. Most people are just terrified <laughs> by it. You know, which is <laughs> what you talked about earlier about hope, you know, about the positive part is that despite the fact that there are things that just terrify the crap out of me, I don't like the politics, I don't like the direction that things are moving. I think that, you know, we have some real ethical issues, whether it's climate change or leadership or women, people of color. I mean, there, there's a whole in HR, there's a whole so many issues that we need to resolve and we need to get our head straight. But I don't wake up in the morning completely depressed and overwhelmed. I get up and I'm anxious to get to my job and I check things out and I start writing and I start thinking about things. And here I am as an older baby boomer and I've got three projects on the table. My friends think I'm crazy. (laughs) I'm probably the exception, but I have so many people that I know that retired in the last two years, retired at the end of the last year, and said, no, I've had enough. We're going to just do our thing. And here I am with like three projects that I've made pretty significant investments in for the future. (laughs) It's not to stay alive. I mean, I can stop right now and retire and, you know, I'd have a comfortable life. I'm still investing in it. So, you know, how does that happen? What's my makeup? And I guess I'm trying to figure out my own self to figure out how do I think that way? And how can I get other people to see that way? And, you know, there's less study on positivity. And, and I'm not a big positivity guy. I mean, I know about it. I understand it. But it's not that I said, oh, that really resonates and I'm going to get into it. It just happens that when I talk about it, someone like you says, hey, does this fit into your world? And I go, yeah, it does. But I didn't come from that background. I would just was doing it. And now I'm trying to figure out why. Why aren't I terrified? Why aren't I like every old grouchy old guy? <laughs> That's complaining about how miserable the world is and how young people are screwing it up. When actually it's us, it's the baby boomers that screwed it up. (laughs) (laughs) Well, all of what you just said resonates with me in a very meaningful way. And and as you were talking about it, talk about the need for certainty, the fact that we're like focused on, we're always thinking about the future with the anxiety side of things. How do you recommend getting through that? What advice do you have for our listeners to shift so that they are either accepting of it or being more present in the moment? And it's a great question and it's emerging. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. It's if you had a simple evolving. answer to that, I would have been blown away. So, <laughs> Yeah, I don't know if it's a simple answer, but it's a blueprint. There's a framework. And I was introduced to a group from the UK just a few years ago, and they were doing a lot of research on this. And at the time was, oh, that's really interesting. That would be good. And then the pandemic hit and, and all these things sort of fell into place. But they did research and they were looking at the future and they were trying to think of how do you make people ready for the future, change ready? How do you get them comfortable with it? What they identified were these 15 dimensions, which makes up this adaptability quotient. But the framework, the model is just fascinating. So they looked at it and said, well, there's five personal abilities that we need to develop to become better. And you've heard a lot about these. And two of them are grit and resilience. And people say, well, if you have more grit, then you can do it. Just keep your head down. Just keep plowing the head. You know, you'll get through it. We've lived through this before. It's tough. And endurance and perseverance is good. I mean, we need to keep our head down and we need to work hard. We're still going to have to do that. And then we're going to get knocked down. And therefore, we need resilience. We need to bounce back. and We need to bounce back quickly. 
And people rely on those two. The problem with that is the one thing they found in the study was that the more grit you have, the lower is another dimension. And the yeah. other dimension is unlearning. Okay. And what is unlearning is the ability to let go. It's stop doing what's not working anymore. It's saying, well, I did this for 20 years or, you know, I've done this for 30 years and look where it got me. And you go, yeah, but it's not going to get you to the next 10 years. It's not going to get you to the next year. And so you have grit and resilience. And then the additional dimensions happen to be unlearning. In order to have unlearning, you have to be willing to learn new things. You need to be able to have an open mind. You're going to make some mistakes. We're not going to be perfect, which means we need a growth mindset. So growth mindset is the fourth personal dimension. And then mental flexibility, and this is huge because it's dealing with cognitive dissonance, but it's also dealing with misinformation. As I said, turn on MSNBC, CNN, and uh, Fox News simultaneously, and and your head will explode, except (laughs) if you actually do it and you have mental flexibility, it's like, can I draw like not the differences, but similarities? What are they saying? And maybe it's an opposite viewpoint and you don't like it, but maybe there's some truth in that. So. To be able to pull back and look at all this information that's going on there, and especially the misinformation, and be able to figure out which is which, and also then to aggregate it all, is mental flexibility. That's a difficult one. I mean, I'm not going to go into that because that, to me, may turn out to be the most important, but it's going to be the most challenging for people to deal with. But grit and resilience, how can you help people? The nice thing about, not the nice thing, but the important thing about the abilities is there truly are abilities. You can teach people how to become more gritty to become more resilient, to have a growth mindset, to how to unlearn. And you can really teach people how to have a greater mental flexibility. Now, with that said, that's how we can help individuals. But in order for that to happen, and why many companies are losing the people, why they have this great resignation is they may have these people who are ready to change. And they probably are ready to change because they're quitting their jobs and they're ready to change. So (laughs) the test is, do these people have some adaptability? How well they're going to do in their future, we don't know. But they have that gumption. They have that initiative They say, hey, I'm hopeful that the next job that I take in a different place is going to be better than the one I had. For companies to stem that flow, to keep the people that they want to keep, they need to create an environment that helps. And one of the measures is company support. And I can tell you from the surveys that we've done within companies and definition of company support, a real simple definition is, do the employees feel that management has their back? And I can tell you the answer is not really. It's not really to absolutely no. We don't feel that. I've seen scores <laughs> yeah. on a percentile basis. I mean, I've seen you know companies with 25%, 30%, 40%, 60% or 70% of the company doesn't feel that you have their back, which also goes in line with what Gallup has been telling us for 30 years. 70% of the workers are disengaged. I mean, this isn't new. So we're just spinning the words and saying, okay, you know, it comes from company support. So again, the pandemic just pulled the curtain back. So you have company support, you have team support, which is how do they feel working with the team? If something happens, will my team members support me? Will they help me out? Will they cover for me? in a legal way, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. will they be there? Now, fortunately, that's higher in most places, depending on the departments, or that may have to do with the manager as well. But company support is super critical. Team support is important, but it's not as in bad shape as company support. Then we look at emotional health as another dimension. Where is everybody's head? You know, do they feel okay? Or what's their well-being like? It's a pulse check. And as you can imagine, a lot of people are on shaky ground there. We look at the work environment and work environments. This is really important of how do you get people to change is have we created a psychologically safe space? Do they feel it's okay to say, I'm struggling or I have an idea. I don't agree with that. What happens if they do that? Are there policies and processes in place to be able to do that? And then how well they're actually responding is the emotional health. And then the fifth one looks at the job stress or work stress. Uh, How stressful is your job? Now, Every job has some stress in there. So we're not trying to take it down to zero where that's not an ideal, actually ideal somewhere like in 40 or 50, that there's enough stress because that's healthy stimulation. One of the companies that I just worked with had three or four people. It was only a team of 10. It was three or four were like in the 90s. Two of them were 98% on the stress scale. The 50 is okay, but 98 is completely and utterly overwhelmed and ready to crash. And while... Now, interesting to know, the people who had 98 also had high grit. So they're not quitters. The problem with somebody who's high grit and working in a 98% stressful job 
eventually has medical problems, health problems, or completely burns out. So kind of where can we go with this? You know, companies need to look of real quickly. I mean, this is like a 20-minute survey. What do people think about your environment? Is it supportive of them to help change? If they're struggling, they could be struggling, but at least they feel that there's support and they're going to stay with you. If they don't feel there's support, well, I'm going to go from someplace else where I think there's going to be support. But we also need to help the individuals. And that's what the McKinsey's and the World Economic Forum and the Deloitte's are talking about. That's the reskilling and upskilling. That's when Uval Nova Harari says adaptability. By the way, Daniel Goldman, who most people will recognize from emotional intelligence, you know, over the last 20 years, he's identified the adaptability competence as the number one competence for career satisfaction, life satisfaction, and career success. So it all comes back to adaptability is how do you, if you can help people become more successful and going back to the old industrial age, going back 40 or 50 years, is that, well, we don't want to help people become more successful because then they'll quit. (laughs) If you stick with us for two or three years, then yeah, then we'll talk about maybe we can help you or we're going to train you. And now it's how do we train people to be more comfortable so they stay because they value that relationship. They may not stay for a lifetime, but they're going to value that of what you're doing from them because if you can help them adapt to the changes at work, those are transferable skills that they can take home and they can adapt their new works, their personal style, their lifestyle. They can help their children. They can help their spouses. They can help their aging parents. Whatever it is, is they have the ability to deal with personal skills. So that's the direction it needs to go. And that's why I'm hopeful. And that's why I also know it's, you know, there's millions of people that are struggling. And fortunately, there are some leaders that recognize the need that that's the path. And, you know, we hope, hope to work with them. People that think it's going back to normal, it's going to, we're going to get back to, you know, the way it was. And, you know, these labor shortages I've lived through multiple times and they're going to go away. You know, you're living a pipe dream. <laughs> It's just not going to happen. Yeah, there's a lot of insight there. And and one area, I mean, thinking about adaptability, you and I talked previously about the whole concept of the growth mindset. How does the growth mindset, I know you're doing some work on, I think I called it a course incorrectly. I don't remember. Tell me about how the growth mindset can help with that. And like, what are some of the things that you're doing to help people on this front? Right. So it's not a course in the sense that, you know, you sit through a bunch of classes and we'll sit through some webinars or some classes. And then at the end of that, it's like you get a certificate and it's like, oh, I got a growth mindset. <laughs> it's a mindset. <laughs> it's going to change. This is about coaching. You know, I'm a strong believer, in, especially over the years. I wasn't this way in the past, but it's about micro learning. What are those moments in time? How do you reinforce somebody rather than sitting them down for three hours or six hours? And then at the end of the day, and you go, okay. Now, practice these every day, you know, create your journal and do that, and they're off, and then it gets buried as soon as you get back to work. So we, based on those five dimensions, and we selected growth mindset to do it first, we're going to have a 30, it's going to take 30 days, it's going to be once a month, but essentially 20 messages, 20 days during the week, people will be contacted either by email or text. And each day there will be either an exercise or a video or an article, something to just get them to think about growth mindset. Again, we're taking the old metaphor, the old story was, you know, how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? How do you fix adaptability? It's going to be one bite at a time. So we chose growth mindset because that seems to be an impetus, a catalyst for a couple of these other things. If you improve growth mindset, then you're probably going to be a little freer to unlearn. Hopefully that improves your resilience. So one thing leads to the other and we can kind of cover multiple ones, but we're going to do this growth mindset. It's going to be a 30-day subscription. It's all going to be online. We're going to have some things that you can get support through that. We may do some webinars involved around that, but it could be a completely hands-off approach that a company can say, hey, this is our focus. We want to help our managers and we want to help our employees develop this growth mindset. That's on the initiative. That was actually in the bank we used. That was their initiative for the year was growth mindset. And then each, they can get subscriptions and for over a month, they're going to get 20 different messages and exercises and reminders 
and some journals, you know, some accountability and some feedback. We're going to be building into that. And then we're going to build it out for resilience and we're going to build it out for unlearning and grit. And then probably the final one we'll tackle is mental flexibility. Then we're going to flip it. And we're also going to go to the side of for leaders. What can they do to improve company support? What can they do to improve the emotional health of their employees? But we just started with the growth mindset. Hopefully by March, we're actually going to be beta testing it in the next few weeks. And then hopefully March or April, we're going to invite the first cohorts into there. I absolutely love all of that. If you need any beta testers, sign me up. So that's very cool. I'm going to put you down. (laughs) I'm I'm going to do it. We're doing it probably in the next (laughs) week or so. Right in my my alley. I love this stuff. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. With that, I know we're kind of rounding the corner on time. So I'm going to jump into the last section of questions here. So a little bit more personal questions. But what advice do you wish you were given before entering your profession? And you could go, I guess, in this one with your dentistry or your second phase of your profession. Well, it certainly fits into this conversation. It's okay to, I won't say to quit, it's okay to change. I stuck with dentistry much longer than I should have. Now, I will tell you that it was very, very successful. I had a comfortable lifestyle doing it and I was good at it and I learned a lot. But I was afraid of making that change. What will people think? You know, I made that investment. It's a sink cost, you know, thing. Yeah. But I wish somebody told me, had to support it, rather than, why are you quitting? What are you going to do? I wish I had surrounded myself with some people. And sometimes you can't choose your relatives and <laughs> to be able to do that. But I wish I had listened to some people that go, it's okay. You can do it. And again, I had a good friend that said, no matter whatever you do, you'll be okay. I was like, yeah, I know that, but I still, I invested all this time and money and effort and people think of me as a dentist. You know, what am I going to call myself if I leave? (laughs) So that's the one piece of advice that I wish I had gotten probably 30 or 40 years ago. Awesome. In the last five years, what new belief, behavior, or habit has most improved your life? Adaptability. Uh, There's no question. (laughs) I've learned so much from doing this. I mean, it's changed my perspective very much so. And it gave me a framework and not that I've changed my attitude because I was always hopeful and adversity and and I knew the entrepreneur spirit when everybody else was retiring, I was still figuring out how to grow and and learn. And I got my master's degree and I think I was 58 when I got my master's degree. But I finished, (laughs) you know, people say, why are you doing that? You already have a doctor and you got a bachelor's, you're successful. You know, why would you need that? And I enjoyed that experience. And then now it allows me to actually teach a master's program in school. But yeah, so, but I didn't have a framework. I was just doing it. I was just sort of winging it life. And this says, okay, here's what I need to personally be able to work on. And then how can I, if I'm going to mentor other people and I want to share that message rather than just saying, you know, I don't know how I got here. I just did. It gave me a model to actually help other people and mentor and coach them to get there. Awesome. And what is the book or books you've given most as a gift and why? Well, I've given most of mine, most books are recruiting in the age of Googleization. <laughs> I could see it in your background. I was like, this is a layup. This is a layup. <laughs> so yeah, recruiting there, in the age yeah, of... And prior yeah. to that, it was Geek Skeezers, Googleization, and Perfect Labor Storm. <laughs> the one I recommended most recently is the Adaptation Advantage. Okay. There's actually two of them that I've literally given away or, or at least recommend to everybody is the Adaptation Advantage. It's really an excellent book. And we were talking a little bit about that because there's actually a chapter or two in there that talks about how we destroy our kids because as soon as they're, you know, they got a three-year-old grandson running around upstairs and somebody's going to be, well, what do you want to be when you grow up? It's like, how how are they going (laughs) to, and then you have to stick with it. That's what happened to me in fifth grade. Somebody, my teacher said, what are you going to be when you grow up? And it got around, I was a W, I'm at the end of the alphabet. So everybody gave these things and I said, I'm going to be a dentist. And I was like, that I was too stubborn to change that. <laughs> but how bad is, or the first thing you do when you go to a party, what do you ask them? What do you do? Yeah. You know, and they give you a new job title. It's so paralyzing and it's so confining. So the adaptation advantage is well beyond that. But those two chapters or that chapter that's focused on that is really, really valuable for everybody. The other book, again, there's so many, I've got piles of them here. The other one that I highly recommend is Disruption Mindset. And it's by Charlene Lee, L-I is her last name. It's about the difference between disruptive and disruption. And there's a difference. And we keep talking about transformation and what does that look like? And But she, again, she talks about different types of leaders, different mindsets. So we all talk about the same. It's nothing new. <laughs> we just talk about yeah. it in a 
different ways and whosever story resonates the most. So I applaud them. I mean, they frame it in a slightly different way than I do, but I've learned so much from those two books. The other book that I always found interesting, and this is old, which is Blue Ocean Strategy or Blue Ocean That's Strategy. A great one. Yeah. And again, I use that. I was using that in my class just to get people to stop swimming in the red ocean, you know? So we have to lower our prices or do something creative. And it's like, why don't you just swim in where everybody's not Change it up. <laughs> yeah. I love it. Yeah. Oh, those, are, those, are those are two or three. They sit at the top of my pile. So <laughs> Awesome. And then last question I've got for you is what is an unusual habit or absurd thing that you love? Oh, that's an interesting one. <laughs> weird habit. I don't know. My wife says I'm always weird. <laughs> uh, I guess the one is that seems to surprise people. I don't think it's weird. I'll work out at the end of the day. It's the end. Yeah. It forces me. If I don't do it, I'm not going to exercise. Yeah. But we'll eat dinner at 9, 10, 1030 at night. Yeah. Now we stay up until one. So my <laughs> you know, night I mean, people say, you know, you shouldn't eat so late and go to bed. The reality is, is that we have a lot of friends that eat dinner at six and they go to bed at eight or eight thirty, yeah. nine. So, you know, we're on a 10 o'clock dinner. I guess that's European. 10 o'clock dinner and we got to bed at 12 or 1. We don't think it's weird. People find that weird. (laughs) I've been on that schedule for many moments (laughs) in my life. So with that, any closing comments for the audience? Again, I think there's so much opportunity out there and it's going to be troubling. We have to become comfortable being uncomfortable, which is, I guess, my message And I appreciate the opportunity to be here and to share how we might do that or how people might do that. But again, there's so much opportunity out there. It's kind of exciting. Hopefully I'm around to to see a lot of the things that we thought we're good. You know, we didn't see the Jetsons. We haven't had the flying cars yet, but if Elon Musk keeps up, we've... (laughs) We're we're close. (laughs) Yeah, we're close. But there's so many good things about it. And I guess one of my pieces of advice, and we didn't talk about this, was if you roll the clock back just five years or let's say 10 to be safe, and this pandemic happened in 2012, that how we complain about technology, we complain about Zoom, we complain about all the fatigue. Where would we have been without <laughs> all this technology? And including the vaccine. We're not going to get into a debate that the vaccines are not, but basically we created a vaccine in just a few months because of technology, because of sciences. So, you know, if we want cures for Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and cancer and better education and more, you know, better life work balance or integration, whatever you want to call it, technology can help us get there, but we also have to be more human (laughs) on the way. Great insights. Great conversation with you today, Ira. I really, really appreciate you joining us and thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Staffing Show. Don't forget to sign up for our newsletter at staffinghub.com to never miss an episode. Until next time.